you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. Moan Broadcast Center. This is Take Two. Me, Martinez. The State Assembly and Senate have agreed on a budget plan that mostly lines up with Governor Gavin Newsom's economic vision for California. There are a few differences, though. We'll hear all about them. Plus, in April, the Cinerama Dome closed for good. But with life opening back up, the Hollywood movie house Jewel may finally be getting another chance to shine. It's all ahead on Take Two. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alleyist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for being with us today. Coming up, it looks like AMC Theaters is in the running to buy up LA's Arclight and Pacific Theaters, which fell victim to the pandemic. We're going to get into those details just ahead. Plus, we'll talk to the mom of an LA toddler who just made it into Mensa. But first, California's lawmakers respond to Governor Gavin Newsom's budget proposal. Now, if you recall, the governor presented a $267 billion and change budget a few weeks ago that includes ambitious plans such as converting hotels into homeless housing and opening college savings accounts for first graders. Now, yesterday's response from state legislators is a little cheaper, but it does not come across as any less ambitious. The joint spending plan addresses some issues that Governor Gavin Newsom does not, including expanding access to college and creating a statewide first-time homebuyer program that would address decades of housing discrimination against communities of color. Here to tell us more about it is Laurel Rosenhall, who covers California politics for Cal Matters. Laurel, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure. Now, the, the the governor and the legislature have presented their own proposals now. When are we now in the budget process or where are we actually in the budget process? Yeah, this is the point of the process where they basically start going behind closed doors and hashing out their differences. Um, the legislative leaders from the Assembly and the Senate have come together and they've agreed. So now they're negotiating sort of as a united front with the governor. And um, I anticipate that they will reach some sort of agreement, all three of them, by June 15th. The legislature is um, required to pass the budget by June 15th, and then the governor signs it by the end of the month. And just to be clear, that June 15th, is that a hard deadline or is there wiggle room at all? I mean, it's pretty hard deadline. If they miss it, they risk their paycheck. So they tend to not miss it. <laughs> no, who doesn't? Uh, who wants to risk their paycheck over something small like the budget or anything like that? Right. Now, what's the main difference overall in these two proposals? It must be said that they're pretty similar. That's the starting point. They're both, you know, obviously this is a state run by Democrats. Overall, their priorities are pretty similar in terms of funding, you know, early childhood education and um, programs to alleviate homelessness, things like that. But the the devil is in the details or the differences in the details, I guess. And so, um, you know, the, the legislature overall um, spends a little bit less than Newsom would. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then in some key areas, they, they do have some differences and um, I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah, let's uncover the devil in those details. Uh, starting with public health. Now, this seems like something that uh, Governor Newsom didn't really address. 
Yeah, it was interesting. Obviously, so much of the budget this year is focused on helping the state recover from the pandemic. Um, public health departments, which were really on the front lines during the pandemic response in terms of you know, contact tracing, vaccines, all of that, testing, um, they didn't get any sizable increase in the budget that Newsom proposed a couple weeks ago. So they were pretty um, upset and noisy and advocating for more funding. The legislature came through and is, is suggesting that they get an additional $200 million to um, add staff and, you know, modernize their operations. And health equity, too. Right? I mean, that's they're, they're pushing some things that Governor Newsom, as I mentioned, didn't really maybe think of or didn't really have in that first plan. Yeah, the legislature is um, setting aside another $100 million a year for community health organizations that work on health equity and racial justice issues. This is funding Newsom didn't include, um, but the lawmakers feel like the pandemic really exposed the need for more attention to the, you know, the interplay between race and health. Obviously, the outcomes we saw with COVID were were very much linked to, um, to people's uh, ethnicity and with black and brown people really bearing the brunt of the of the infections. Now, the legislature also wants to expand certain programs that undocumented immigrants that helps uh, undocumented immigrants and that they weren't eligible for. What are those programs and how do they want to do this? Yeah, well, the backdrop here is that, you know, federal benefits generally aren't available um, to most undocumented folks. And obviously we have, you know, lots of um, lots of Californians who are in this country without legal documentation. And so um, the legislature wants to create programs that, that can help them in ways that federal benefits have been helping other needy people during the, the pandemic. Um, in specific, there's a disagreement about how much to expand Medi-Cal, which is the government subsidized health insurance program. Um, Governor Newsom proposed offering Medi-Cal to undocumented Californians age 60 and older, but lawmakers want to uh, make it available for those who are age 50 and older. So that's one big difference. And then the other one has to do with food assistance. Um, the legislature proposed spending about half a billion dollars to offer food aid to California immigrants um, who are left out of the you know, federal food stamps program. And Laurel, even though, as we mentioned, that this is a very blue state, very democratic state, uh, this has to be, I could imagine, one of the most contentious parts of the whole thing. It really is. This issue about how much to expand Medi-Cal has been a debate in Sacramento for years. You know, it started um, under Governor Jerry Brown. There was um, a small expansion, you know, first um, California added children, then young adults were added. We're talking about undocumented uh, Californians here. And then um, in the last couple of years, the debate has really been about, you know, how much to expand the program to undocumented seniors. And the big sticking point is that this is an ongoing expenditure. In other words, this year, the budget is great. There's tons of money from the federal government. The stock market's doing really well. So wealthy Californians are paying lots of taxes. And Newsom's looking for ways to spend money that won't commit him for the long haul, that are more like, you know, spend it now while you have it and don't make promises for the future that you might not be able to keep. The legislature in wanting to, you know, offer this health care to more people would be taking on a long-term commitment. And so that's where I expect we'll really see a lot of the tension is just over, you know, how much should the state commit itself over the years to come when you don't know what the financial circumstance may be in the future. And then there's the legislature's plan to increase access to college for in-state students. Take us through that part of the plan. Yeah, this is really interesting. You know, this is actually one of the very big differences between the legislature and the governor's proposal. Um, lawmakers want to, you know, do a massive expansion of the Cal Grant financial aid program, and then also make sure that the UC and Cal State campuses serve more students. And so one proposal they have is that um, the, the most coveted UC campuses, Berkeley, UCLA, and UC San Diego, um, basically commit to enroll fewer out-of-state students, and the state would then pay the universities to make up the difference of that tuition that those out-of-state students normally bring. They obviously pay, I think it's about triple the rate, so they, they, yeah. that's why the UCs do that. Um, and then the other part of the proposal has to do with just simply creating more slots. You know, that means 
creating more course sections and hiring more instructors and whatnot so that the UCs and the CSUs can both just accommodate more students than they've been able to. So those would be expansions that would kind of roll out probably in like fall 22. But again, um, Newsom didn't, didn't propose this, th anything this major on higher ed. So it remains to be seen in the negotiations where they land. And one thing when it comes to savings accounts, a college savings accounts for K through 12 students, what's the differences saw there? Yeah, that's another um, really interesting thing. You know, Gavin Newsom, when he was the mayor of San Francisco, he created this kindergarten to college program that put um, that created a savings account for every um, every child in San Francisco so that they could save for college. And then when he became governor, he started like a little mini pilot program doing something like that around the state. And this year, because the budget is so flush with money, he proposed a $2 billion proposal to give um, all first graders at least $500 in co college savings accounts. The legislature cut that in half. Um, they scaled it back to a $1 billion program and said that it should go to newborns instead of first graders. We're talking to Cal Matters reporter Laurel Rosenhall about the state's legislature's joint budget proposal and how it differs from Governor Gavin Newsom's. All right, now uh, housing and homelessness, both the governor and the legislature differ on how much money should be spent and over what time periods. What are those differences? Yeah, again, start. I'll start off by saying that, you know, the differences are not huge. Um, they both want to pour many billions of dollars into homelessness and recognize what a problem it is in communities up and down California, the um, lack of affordability and the large number of people that are sleeping on the streets. Um, but they differ in, you know, exactly like how, how long to spend rolling out the money. So the legislature wants to... Uh, spend eight and a half billion dollars over the next two years, while the governor is proposing 6.8 billion in the next year alone. So that's one big difference. And then the other one has to do with how much flexibility local governments, like cities and counties, would get to um, to spend to spend money addressing homelessness in their own communities. The legislature is suggesting that local governments should, that they, they want to spend a billion dollars yeah. helping local governments on this issue, whereas Newsom did not include that kind of ongoing flexible funding for homelessness. Local control always becomes a sticky thing. Yeah, it always does. Um, now, uh, what about ambitious uh, programs targeting home ownership? The California Dream for All First-Time Home Buyer Program. How would that program work? Yeah, this is a really um, unusual idea um, that it would basically create a new kind of like state uh, fund, a, a kind of a, a corporation that would basically help people buy homes. The state would sort of serve as like a silent partner and own a minority share of a house. So the idea would be it would really um, reduce the cost of a home that the homeowner would have to bring to it because this um, state-run entity would 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 own the other half. Um, this is not something that the assembly initially proposed, nor something that the governor initially proposed. This came from the uh, Senate leader Tony Atkins, a Democrat from San Diego. Um, it seems like a really huge thing to introduce and put into law um, in the next couple weeks. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if this kickstarts, you know, some conversations and some yeah. some sort of more long term analysis of whether this is achievable. Um, but obviously, it'll be really interesting to see where they land on this one, because. Um, homeownership is such a difficult thing for so many Californians. Laurel, I had to look at the calendar because I had I did a double take when I saw that the the, the dream for all uh, first time home. Yeah. I was like, wait a second, how much time do they have to agree exactly. on this? Yeah, so it seems like um, I mean, my reading of the tea leaves is that this seems very hard to put together a program this robust in you know in in the time that they have. But a lot of times in Sacramento. <clears throat> They, they introduce um, what Newsom likes to call a big, hairy, audacious goal. <laughs> and then, you know, they, they see what they put that out there and then they work toward it incrementally. And that, that may be where this lands. We'll yeah. have to see. With, with a lot of this stuff, Laurel, is it one of those things where the governor comes up with his proposal and then it's like, um, 
having a, like a second chance to do this. I mean, maybe Newsom would have put some of these things in there if he had thought of them. Is that, is it, could it be broken down that simply or is that just too simple of a way to think of it? I mean, it's a collaborative process and the legislature, you know, they're very proud of the role that they play in um, determining how the state spends money. So it, it is meant to be a negotiation okay. and, um, and with Democrats all in control, you know, the difference is, are smaller. It doesn't eliminate the differences, but it does kind of bring them a lot closer or quicker. All right. That's uh, Laurel Rosenhall, reporter for Cal Matters, covering California politics. Laurel, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. All right, now that things are starting to open back up, you can't blame people for sprinting outdoors to do stuff, anything outdoors. I mean, we'd been asked to stay indoors as much as possible for a long time. And for a lot of L.A. residents, though, staying at home just did not feel very safe. Find out why when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. Ami Martinez. Early in the pandemic, with a new deadly virus spreading, LA Mayor Eric Garcetti ordered residents to stay home. One thing is crystal clear in the fog of these days. We are all safer at home. But for those Angelinos living in the city's vast web of unpermitted housing, they often did not feel safe in their homes. During the pandemic, they've dealt with dangerous conditions, threats of eviction, and a slow response from city officials. KPCC's David Wagner has a story of one group of tenants. When you first walk through the gates of this ramshackle one-story complex in LA's mid-city neighborhood, it looks deserted. Windows are boarded up, a dumpster has been flipped over, the courtyard is full of junk from people who seem to have left in a hurry. But on closer inspection, families still live here. He wants it to look abandoned out here. Kim Moore points out a number of problems the owner hasn't fixed, like the electrical wires dangling from the roof. I mean, some of this wiring don't even go to anything. Like, come in, get it out of here. Like, come and take care of your building. City records show the property was built in the 1940s as a motel and later converted into a board and care home in the 1970s. Today, it's in a state of disrepair. On top of that, tenants have received threats of eviction. Early in the pandemic, they say they received a letter telling them to leave in 30 days. Moore says tenants were confused. Weren't there laws in place to stop evictions? We're saying, but you can't do this. We're in the midst of a pandemic. Where are we going to go? I have my grandchildren. People have kids over here. Moore says none of that mattered. You literally couldn't just throw us out in the street. It was hard. Of the few dozen units in this complex, about a third are still occupied. Some remaining tenants are now suing the LLC that owns the building, as well as LLC manager Ali Katabchi. He hasn't filed a response yet. We sent Katabchi a list of questions. He didn't answer them, but said in a brief text he'll defend himself in legal proceedings. Some of the tenants struggled with homelessness before ending up here. Kim Moore says she was living in a van. 
Her daughter, Kamisha Nafaretti, rents the room next door. I felt like I had no other options. Before she found this small studio listed online for $700 a month, Nafaretti says she was living in a hotel. I was kind of running low on my money that I had saved to move, and I felt like obligated to move here because that's all I had left. She says only later did she learn how bad the conditions would get. When the pandemic hit, another tenant, Miguel Roman, says he was laid off from his job in a hotel. Losing that income was stressful. So was the thought of getting COVID-19. So he says he followed public health orders to stay home. But he says staying home is what got him hospitalized. I had to go to the hospital because of these guys here. Roman pushes his bed away from the wall and crouches down to pick up a sticky trap full of spiders. One of them just bit me one night and I, I didn't notice it till a couple of days after my whole leg started getting red. Roman went to a doctor who kept him in the hospital over two days for observation. I was extremely scared. So not only are you worried about what's going on with your leg, but you're worried about the COVID. <laughs> so you're going through a lot. It turns out the city has known about problems with this building for a long time. The property was cited in April of 2019 as substandard due to hazardous electrical wiring. City inspectors also found unapproved locks, missing smoke alarms, and that the property wasn't even approved to be rented out. There are illegal, unpermitted units all over the city where people are being really seriously exploited. LA Tenants Union organizer David Roud has been helping the tenants fight the eviction. The cases like this that we're aware of are just truly scratching the surface. Trinidad Ocampo is an attorney with Neighborhood Legal Services of LA County. She says recently about one out of every five cases she's seen involves unpermitted housing. The people that are experiencing some of the worst harassment are the ones in illegal units. Ocampo says tenants have had their water and power shut off. In one case, we had a landlord who removed the front door entirely to the illegal unit where a single mother lived with her children. Last summer, after tenants at the Mid-City property complained to the city, the housing department sent a letter to Ali Katapchi's LLC ordering him to cancel the evictions. Officials say this case is now being considered for criminal prosecution. Still, two years after the building was first cited, tenants haven't seen much improvement or any help relocating. In fact, during the pandemic, enforcement against unpermitted units plummeted across the city. We'll look into why that happened tomorrow. Covering the economy, I'm David Wagner. This story was produced as part of a data fellowship through the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism. Moving on, more than 12,000 American Legion posts closed for at least part of the pandemic. That left many of them in financial trouble. Now they're hoping people will come back for events such as wedding receptions, family reunions, and bingo. Ann Kin Egendorf of the American Homefront Project, a collaboration of public radio stations including KPCC, visited post number 327 in Shawnee, Kansas. In the main hall of a modest brick building on a suburban street, a few dozen people hunker over bingo cards along white plastic folding tables. G47, G47. The post only takes a small profit after prizes are paid out, but the sounds of the game are exciting. They signal that the space has reopened to the public. We've got a bingo. Far from the calls of letters and numbers, the Post's members and its commander gather around the bar in the basement, still reeling from their pandemic losses. We were dying. Richard Baer Sobek is a former Marine and Vietnam veteran. He's a longtime member, but just took over as Post commander in May. When asked if he thinks they can regain their financial footing, he says, Toss a coin up. What galls Sobek is that while his post worked hard to follow health and safety guidelines, like closing for several months in order to keep its employees and 376 members safe, other posts did not. Uh, that burnt a whole lot of people mentally, and they said, and so a lot of our people decided, well, the other posts are open, so we'll go there. The Post received a loan from the Federal Paycheck Protection Program that helped out a little during the shutdown. But that money's just about gone. And the pandemic not only cost the Post revenue, but some of its members. Post manager Jeannie Barnhart says, Yeah, it's, it's hurt us big time. 
but it's getting better. They've resumed booking bands on Friday nights, and slowly members have begun to return. Now that they don't have to wear a mask, they're happy. Dennis and Leanne Busby are glad to be back. Neither is a veteran, but Dennis is a member through Sons of the American Legion. His father served in World War II. What's fun now is the joy of seeing some of these guys come in here. One of them came in last week that I hadn't seen for over a year. It was good to see him because you wonder if some of these people didn't die. Now he and his wife are parked at a high top near the bar as many as four evenings a week. Originally the reason I decided to join was the fact that it's an older crowd that isn't quite so crazy. Like a lot of people, the Busbys spent the lockdown watching Netflix, but as far as entertainment goes, he knew he was missing out. And just amazing thing is, is some of these old veterans that sat around in here have stories to tell that you just go, what? He says that while it was hard to be away, he appreciates that Post 327 followed guidelines. It was as tough for them as anyone. It was tough for everybody, but they didn't complain about it or wonder why the somebody wasn't here to bail them out. It was just like, this is the way it is, so we'll go on. Now that he's gaining some perspective on it, Richard Sobeck, the Post's commander, sees the situation a little differently. He tells about being strafed by enemy fire on a tiny island with a bunch of guys during Vietnam. And that's nothing different from COVID. So, you know, we've been shot at by an enemy. It's called a disease. And if everybody worked together, it wouldn't have gotten quite as bad as it did. So Beck and his remaining members are hopeful that as word gets out that the post is back in business, hall rentals will take off again, and old friends will gather to hear the bands. You know, where else can you go for a Friday night and pay five bucks and dance all night? Okay? In Shawnee, Kansas, I'm Ann Knigendorf. All right, now to something completely different. At age two, Los Angeles toddler Cash Quest has become the youngest member of Mensa. The toddler already has an IQ of 146, which is nearly 50 points higher than the average American adult. Cash can already name all 50 states and the whole periodic table and is working on learning Spanish. Here to talk about life with a little Mensa member, we have Cash's mom, Sue Athwal. Hey, Sue. Hi, thank you for having me. Sure. Now, when did you notice that something was unique about Cash? Um, you know, I think as parents, we always think our child is unique, um, and that's our <laughs> own biased perspective. Sure. Um, but I think in terms of coming from a child educational background, I was always hands-on with her very early on. And I think once uh, she turned the curve around her first birthday and she started showing interest in a lot more retention skills and anything that we learned, um, we started to notice things and we started working with her more. And then it actually wasn't until we took her to her, I think, 18-month appointment where we, you know, talked to her pediatrician and she realized her verbal skills were so high compared to children her age um, that it kind of put more perspective onto um what we had already known and uh-huh. she kind of helped guide us in terms of, you know, possibly exploring the option of getting her tested. So you, you mentioned that you come from a learning background. Did you maybe adapt Cash's learning once you realized what was going on? Did, did it change or did it stay pretty much the same? Oh no, it absolutely changed. And, um, you know, currently I actually actually run my own preschool, um, called the modern school house. And so we kind of have, gravitated toward the same philosophy and it's it's considered a whole child approach so we we have our curriculum but it's not a set curriculum and it we really focus on the interest and the the strength and uh, needs of the children that way they can get the maximum exposure and the higher quality of learning does cash realize what's going on or sh- i mean that that's one of the things that's always fascinated me about kids especially kids that maybe show uh, you know an advanced ability in any area if they realize what's going on with themselves yeah i don't honestly think she realizes what's going on um i think she kind of is now like if she sees herself on tv she'll <laughs> kind of watch and you know she's a very shy child and that's totally fine she's two um so she sees herself on tv she'll be like oh that's the news and she'll kind of smile and go about playing on her toys but i mean when we come to 
school, she'll just tell her friends, like if we have to, you know, tell her, hey, we're going to try to get on Zoom today or we're going here today. Um, you know, she'll mention it to her friends, but she's like a normal two year old. And I think that's the beauty in all of this. Um, you know, she's getting acknowledgement in terms of her advanced um you know, intellectual ability, but, um, she's still the average toddler. And, yeah. um, I think that's the best of both worlds. Are you worried at all about the pressure that might come with the attention? Um, no. Um, I think me and her dad have a good grasp on everything that's going on. Um, we definitely don't push her into anything if she doesn't want to do it. Um, at the end of the day, we just want to, you know, give her the best life and opportunity possible. And, um, honestly, we don't put any pressure on her and that comes from teaching and that comes from what her interests are. We let her lead the way. And I think that's the best way to do it. So you mentioned how she's guiding you in a lot of ways. What kind of things is she working on now that you've introduced because you see that she's going in a certain direction? Yeah. So, um, one of the things, uh, working with her was, you know, what do we do now that she knows her numbers, colors, shapes? letters and other things so we're actually uh just working on logic puzzles so she's just started doing about like 24 to 36 piece puzzles and um we're doing a lot more mental work which is logic games um you know we the way we even communicate with her and the way we ask her open-ended questions and questions for interpretation um just everything to cater to her linguistic abilities and then to also cater to her mental capacity and um, I think the biggest misconception in terms of what, you know, people think we're working with her is um, you don't have to necessarily sit your child down and put them in front of a workbook to make them learn. There's other ways to be able to implore those options um, without, you know, making them sit down and you can use so many tools and resources just with your everyday doing. So I can imagine only because we live in an achievement culture, especially in America, have you gotten any kinds of requests or emails or questions from parents who maybe want to find out your secret, so to speak? Yeah, parents have reached out. And um, I mean, as an educator, it feels amazing to have parents trust your ability and seek that support. Um, and I do already have small um, things that I've come out with in terms of phonics and reading and alphabet books for infants. Um and that's on um, my other line, which is called the Modern Ma Mom and Baby. And um, yeah, we've had a lot of support with families directed that way. I've had messages telling um, parents telling me that they've purchased the workbook and they're hoping, you know, their child can um, kind of lead the way as well. And that cash has been an inspiration. And um, as a mom, that's I mean, that's the best thing I could possibly hear to be uh, to know that you're an inspiration to others. That's Sue Athwal and a mother of Cash Quest. That's Mensa's youngest new member. Sue, thank you very much. Thank you. This past Sunday, I actually took the plunge and went to see a movie inside a theater for the first time in over a year. It was Cruella at the AMC Burbank, and it felt great. Now, sitting there, I thought the only way it could be even better was if I was in the Cinerama Dome, which is closed for good. Well, it turns out the place I was in might be buying the place I wanted to be in. Find out all about it when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Democracy needs to be heard. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR's Morning Edition. Trustworthy, independent news is getting harder to find, but it's out there, and it matters for democracy. A healthy local news ecosystem leads to a stronger community. You can feel the difference, and you get strong journalism from LAist. So donate today at laist.com give.
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC, and wherever you get your podcasts, I'm A. Martinez. Well, it looks like the Arclight and Pacific Theaters might have a suitor, plus a quiet horror flick made a big splash at the box office. More on this. Let's go on a lot. Pick your head out and yell. You want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Joining me, as always, is Rebecca Keegan, Senior Editor for Film for The Hollywood Reporter. Now, Rebecca, lots of theater news this week as more and more folks continue to head back to the big screen, including myself. We'll get into that uh, a little bit later. Uh, but first, uh, cinema giant AMC raised uh, $230.5 bucks to acquire additional theater leases. And, Rebecca, it's eyeballing a very beloved property. Yeah, so AMC raised this money through a stock sale, and their goal, according to CEO Adam Aaron, is to expand. That could include some of the Arclight and Pacific Theater locations that people were mourning just a few weeks ago when the company that runs them, Decurion, announced they were closing. Think the theater at The Grove, the Arclight in Sherman Oaks. Um, what AMC's announcement did not mention is the beloved Cinerama Dome, what? the historic property. Oh. Doesn't mean they're not potentially looking at it, but that property Decurion actually owns, whereas the other locations they were leasing from landlords. So I would say the fate of all of these theaters is up in the air, but the the Cinerama Dome in particular is going to be a, a more complicated deal for oh, anyone to cut. Rebecca, if all the arc lights are open and the dome is not, that's going to be a problem. Yes. I, I Look, the dome is is the end-all and be-all, although I, I do have to say I went back to the Chinese theater last night for the first time oh. since the pandemic, and oh, it was glorious. It yeah. was so good to be in that big IMAX room. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. All right, now to the box office. A Quiet Place Part Two scored a pandemic-era best opening. Now, for the unfamiliar, it's a horror story about an alien invasion, so here's a clip of the chaos those visitors uh, first cause. It's okay. It's okay. We're okay. We're okay. That, that's good. That's okay. That's good. Oh my god. Ooh, so Rebecca, how well did it do? I hope it did better than the people in the movie. Yes, really well. About 57 million uh at the over the holiday weekend domestically compare that to the opening for the original film which was 50.2 million in 2018 now that wasn't over a holiday weekend but it also wasn't as people are tentatively returning to theaters amid a pandemic um, a quiet place 2 has the advantage of getting an exclusive theatrical release before it hits the streaming service paramount plus in 45 days People seemed eager to get back to theaters, and this is the first big studio movie opening exclusively in theaters. Some of the others, people could also watch at home. And so, and that's exactly why maybe Cruella didn't do as well as Disney had hoped. Yeah, Cruella made about $26.5 million over the holiday weekend. Still solid, uh, especially when you consider, as you say, people could watch it for about $30 on Disney+. Plus. So people who went to see Cruella in the theater were actively choosing a theatrical experience, including, I think... You and your granddaughter, yes? Yeah, Correct. okay. So just to tell you what my my granddaughters can get me to do anything, anything in the world. So let me do a quick <laughs> example before I tell you about Cruella. I went to every Dodger game for 10 years, every Dodger game home and road. That's over 2,000 Dodger games. Since then, that's 2007, what, 15 years now or something like that? I've been to two, the two that my granddaughters wanted me to go to because I, <laughs> I just won't go anywhere. So They're in charge. I had them over the weekend for a sleepover, and I, I was planning to end Sunday night watching Cruella on Disney Plus in the safety and comfort of my home. But they said, Papa, can we go to the theater to watch Cruella? So I just, I knew I was going to do it once they asked, so I bought the mm -hmm. tickets. The whole time, Rebecca, I've got my head on a swivel. I'm, I'm just looking for any, I barely enjoyed the film. They had a great time. They were laughing. I kept looking for something to go wrong. But you know what? I shouldn't have because it was actually a very nice, quiet experience at the movie theaters. I, I probably should have gone to the theaters a long time ago. So people were spaced out and wearing masks. And yeah, I mean, everyone was far away. I sat as close to the screen as possible, buying a ticket, thinking that it would be away from everyone. everyone was a, that's mm -hmm. the way the ticketing works. It puts you away from everyone else. So I shouldn't have been. Right. I shouldn't have been so worried. Right. Good. Glad <laughs> you had a good experience. Well, why do we, how was Glad your experience? How was your experience when you went? Mine to the, was great. It was yeah. fantastic, and lots of spacing. Uh, felt super safe, and it was just. 
to have the sort of thunderous sound and the giant yeah. screen it made me so happy. Did I mess up, Rebecca? I should have gone sooner, right? I should have gone a long time ago. I don't know. I can understand waiting until you're vaccinated, and most people are. It seems like a smart move. Plus, there wasn't a lot of new content in theaters to see until very recently. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Thank you for making me feel better about my, my, myself. <laughs> We're talking to Rebecca Keegan of The Hollywood Reporter. All right, now moving on. A uh, new entity formed by the Discovery Warner Media merger has officially announced a, a not so surprising name as well as a logo. So what's it called, Rebecca, and what are the execs saying about it? Ah, uh, yes. The company will be called the entirely unsurprising Warner Bros. Discovery. Honestly, Warner I was Bros. hoping for Discovery. Disco Bros or Brothers <laughs> Warner or anything with some panache. But they saved the panache for their slogan, which is the phrase, the stuff that dreams are made of. That's oh. a reference to a line from the 1941 Warner's film, The Maltese Falcon. The Brothers Warner. I saw you tweet about that, Rebecca. And I thought for yeah. a second that's a great name. But then I thought people might think it's a circus, like Ringling Brothers. Oh, come on. Or something like It's I classic. Know. I know it's classic. I, I liked it, but <laughs> I, I'm just thinking of other people, the other people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so what are the plans for this group and what kind of a product can we expect? Well, the merger of these two companies combines Discovery, which is a leader in unscripted programming like shows like The Property Brothers, 90 Day Fiance, with Warner Media, which is the company with DC Films, HBO, oh. CNN, etc. So one of the first things they'll be figuring out is how to combine their two streaming services, HBO Max and, Dis and Discovery Plus potentially bundling them the way Disney has with Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus. Speaking of streaming services, Apple, is Apple going to follow suit? And I mean, all the streaming services are doing, they're buying studios. Are they going to buy a studio? Well, it would, it would be smart if they did. I mean, Apple's streaming services, as an analyst described it in a piece in The Hollywood Reporter this week, like a beautiful mansion with no furniture in it. There's just not a lot of marquee programming on Apple TV Plus. And the reason most people subscribe is because they got the subscription for free when they bought an iPhone or a laptop. So if Apple wants to keep those subscribers, it needs to ramp up production. And the easiest way to do that would be by buying an existing studio, like perhaps Lionsgate, um, which has a market cap of $3.8 billion, a drop in the bucket for Apple's $2.1 market cap. You know, Rebecca, uh, a beautiful mansion with no furniture is a minimalist dream. You know that? <laughs> yeah, but it's but not a way not, to get yeah. people to pay 10 bucks a month or whatever they charge. Not good for streaming services, though. All right, no. one more thing. Hollywood, feeling a bit of an economic pinch, uh, production costs shooting through the roof. What's driving that? Well, the same thing that's making it more expensive to build a house right now. Massive supply chain shortages due to the pandemic. So the cost of things like lumber, steel, glass, paint that Hollywood uses to build its sets are way, way up. Yeah, lumber, steel. I mean, Hollywood likes to say it makes dreams, but dreams also take all of that raw material, right? I mean, that's, yes. that's the point, right? Absolutely. And so studios, some productions are trying to find some cost savings elsewhere in the budgets. Others are pivoting to using existing sets or locations rather than building new ones. Uh, but really, I mean, this this inflation issue is hitting all industries, including Hollywood. All right. Uh, Hollywood theaters, get ready for A. Martinez because I'm back, baby. I'm back. He's storming. That's right. He's storming. That's Rebecca Keegan, <laughs> senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Speaking of streaming, it is uh, difficult sometimes to find something to watch. You've been there just endlessly scrolling, wondering, what do I watch? What do I watch? All this new stuff. You don't know exactly what to spend your very valuable time on. Well, the same thing can be said about podcasts. So many podcasts, so many things to attach your ear to. But how do you figure out how to spend your ear's time? Well, luckily, we've got just the right person to tell us exactly what to target. That's coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. How to LA is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lumert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA's a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Tonight I'm gonna have myself a real good time. I feel alive.
Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm A. Martinez. We end today with some podcast recommendations for your listening pleasure. Now, joining us is the one and only Nick Qua, the go-to journalist covering the podcast industry for Vulture and more. He's also the founder of the Hot Pod newsletter. Nick, good to talk to you again. Always a pleasure. All right. Now, you compiled a list of four podcast picks for our listeners, starting with a true crime podcast called Exit Scam from Treats Media. Here's a clip. Everything we know about Jerry's final hours comes from his doctor and his wife, Jen. In most cases, there'd be no reason to doubt a doctor and a grieving widow. But Jerry's case is not most cases. Nick, the best way to tickle my earlobe is to say <laughs> true crime. So what's this podcast about? All who's right, Jerry? So who's Jerry? Yeah. Scam. It's uh, all right. It's true crime adjacent. Um, it, the series looks into uh, the curious case of something called Quadriga, which for a time was Canada's biggest Bitcoin exchange. Uh, and Jerry or Gerald Cotton was that was its founder uh, and mentioned in the trailer. Um, you know, there. So the story is, is that the exchange basically evaporated when Jerry uh, who was hailed at the time as a kind of tech genius in the, vein, in the vein of Zuckerberg, reportedly died from a health complication during a trip to India. And as a result of his death, uh, his customers were told that over $200 million they had deposited on the exchange was lost forever because Jerry was the only person with the passwords. Um, and here's the twist, as you can hear in the trailer, there is a theory or belief he's not really dead. And it's a related belief that Quadriga, the exchange, was at the end of the day, a giant Ponzi scheme. So that is the setup of this true crime adjacent show, which is very, very good. The only person with the passwords. Wow. I mean, it, doesn't everyone know you write them all down and make sure you add an exclamation point at the end of every password? You know, everybody has their own <laughs> system, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> all right. Moving on to number two on the list, Nick. We have uh, BBC's The Lazarus Heist. Yet another true crime pro podcast. <laughs> so let's listen to a clip from that trailer. A terrifying incident probably one of the most terrifying that I've ever seen. The sheer size and scale and the enormity of this attack. I just saw the entire financial markets grinding to a halt. Behind it all, they say, is one man. The mob boss, the soprano, the Pablo Escobar. I mean, Nick, true Christ, it's like it's like just like a like a siren's call. It's luring me into the rocks. And I'm I, like this, I was thinking of you when I compiled this. It, list, but it it does it draws me in. Okay, so tell us what can listeners expect if they tune into this podcast. Yeah, so it's another uh, true crime slash true crime adjacent uh, <laughs> series uh, that's set in the internet largely. Um, so here's where I start my pitch for this show. It starts with the 2014 Sony Pictures hack, which I'm sure you know, had a huge impact on uh, this town when it happened. Yeah. So I think for most people like myself, uh, who just generally read the news at the time and maybe maybe watched the interview, the Seth Rogen film that was swept up, swept up in, that, in that drama, we knew it had something to do with North Korea and it had something to do with cyber crime, maybe cyber warfare. So this series, uh, which is by the BBC World Service, digs into the story threads around and beyond that one event. And it traces it to a much larger, sort of bigger situation about an international hacking group uh, linked to North Korea, which itself had worked on other bigger, grander heists. Nick, um, you know, you and I have had many conversations about podcasts over the last, what, year and a half, two years, something like that. <laughs> um, if I remember correctly, you aren't the biggest true crime fan, correct? So I'm wondering, I mean, two recommendations, two, well, true crime adjacent. That's how, you, that's how you're getting yourself out of this. But I mean, are, are you a fan of the genre now? Okay, listen, since the last time we spoke about this, um, I've made my peace with it. Uh, oh. I, I recognize that there's a lot of hypocrisy at stake, given that I will watch anything, uh, any documentary that has to do with financial crime. Uh, and, you know, there's still a lot of bad true crime podcasts out there, but I figure <laughs> while we're still here, uh, I might as well talk about the ones I really like, you know. Yeah, you know what the true crime was is that you didn't like true crime podcasts. That was the problem. That was the real problem. We're talking not Nick the Qua first person who's told me that. <laughs> I know, I know. I go with the easy joke. What do you want? Low hanging fruit. A. That's my middle name. Uh, we're talking to Nick Quad, journalist covering the podcast industry and founder of the Hot Pod newsletter. All right, next up, uh, a slight departure from true crime to a podcast about frogs. Yeah, frogs. When threatened, it inflates itself and stands up on its hind legs to appear more intimidating. And if that fails, it will lunge forward and let out a frightful war cry. 
I kept waiting to hear Nick if the frog was going to get murdered, um, but I guess not. <laughs> Tell us about the frog of the week, Nick. Let's not forget, frogs are more likely to be the murderers. Um, Ooh, this is a slight true. left turn. Uh, so frog of the week is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, every episode looks at a different frog of the week. Episodes are really, really short, about three minutes or so. And they basically take the form of little fun essays uh, about a given frog. So I made this pick because uh, the show really reminds me of why I really fell in love with podcasts in the first place. Because it's super weird and it's a little unexpected. Uh, it's written and narrated by this woman, Kim. I actually don't know her last name. And it's just a small, quiet, creative project uh, done for fun. And honestly, there should be more and more <laughs> stuff like this out there. Yeah, in three minutes. I mean, that's that's uh, not a lot of time devotion there, which is good. I think that, that draws, you know, if you're only going to give up three minutes of your time to test something out, I mean, that is a perfect length uh, to have. Um, I mean, but so let me ask you this, though, Nick. So it sounds like a pretty unique thing. Why does this type of show land in the podcast landscape, though? So uh, we, or, or at least I and, and the community that I inhabit, uh, tend to talk about podcasting in relation to like how it's a business, how it's yeah. an industry that's growing, you know, future of entertainment, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but podcasting, you know, it's also simply just a digital medium where creative people of all sorts uh, can put out stuff for fun uh, or for experimentation and just be, you know, just be creative. And so Frog of the Week, uh, it, to me, is a manifestation of that. It's just a vibrant piece of little creativity. Um, and, you know, I just so it's, it's a reminder that, like, not everything has to be <laughs> for scale or a blockbuster. All right. Last but certainly not least, we have Audible's The Hot White Heist, a new scripted comedy podcast starring actor-comedian and SNL cast member Bowden Yang, along with an all-queer cast. What's that one about, Nick? Technically, also true crime adjacent. Uh, so another hard turn. Um, I, I'm trying to think about how to adequately explain the plot uh, that's in a public radio friendly way. So uh, Hot White Heist is basically, I, I guess you could call it like a queer slapstick Ocean's Eleven. Oh, okay. uh, the plot sees Bo and Yang's character being compelled for various plot reasons uh, to round up a team made up of his friends uh, to, rob a, to rob a top secret sperm bank. Again, for various plot reasons. Um, the details of which are not super important, but it's a really fun, good show. Queer, slapstick, Ocean's Eleven. You had me at queer and slapstick. I mean, <laughs> that's all I needed to hear. Uh, you didn't even have to do Ocean's Eleven, but uh, wow. That's 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 uh, definitely doable. That's Nick Qua, journalist covering the podcast industry and founder of the Hot Pod newsletter. Nick, as always, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, that's going to do it for take two. If you missed any part of the show, if you want to hear about those four podcasts, uh, just uh, head on over to wherever you get your podcasts and look up take two. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on uh, Twitter, at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA. And that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Marketplace is coming up next. Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.